Hello listeners and welcome back to another episode of Quote Unquote with KK. We had to take a pause due to the financial year end and our regulatory and compliance issues on business. However, we are back once again. Today we are going to be discussing on the future of Indo-US relationship growing positively by quadrupling. Let me roll back a bit. In our season two, we discuss on the world in Biden era, Indo-US relationship, geopolitics and investments with Sridhar Chitala. Last season, we discussed on the Ukraine war and the impact on Asian trade and geopolitics in the face of Russia-Ukraine crisis with Dr. Prague Khan. A lot has changed in the world in the last one year and particularly in the context of US and India relationship. We have been trying to cover geopolitics and economic as they are intertwined in the current scenario. Today we have invited a very strong personality who is at the pivot of Indo-US relationship over the last few years. Such is his influence on Indo-US relationship that even our mainstream media covers him and takes his views when any top minister of India visits US and meets their counterpart. Recently, he was the first Indian to host Mayor Eric Garcetti, the incoming U.S. ambassador to India for dinner. He has been shuttling between Washington and Delhi, building strong bridge and partnership between the two countries in matters of politics, business, and other related areas. After meeting the U.S. ambassador to India, he visited India to dialogue with the powers in India. I am fortunate to have him on our podcast between his hectic India visit and hence we are going to have a very short discussion with him today. Listeners, I'm pleased to introduce a thought leader and expert on Indo-US relationship, a powerful lobbyist and an influencer from India, Dr. Mukesh Aggi, President and CEO of US-India Strategic Partnership Forum. I met Dr. Aggi in 2017 when I was part of a business delegation visiting White House along with our Prime Minister Modi. I was pretty impressed with his relationship with the White House and US government officials in the Trump administration. Dr. Aggi's profile read, he is the president and chief executive officer of the U.S.-India Strategic Partnership Forum. In his current role, Mukesh works extensively with business and government leaders in the U.S. and India to promote trade and strengthen ties between the two countries. He has over 20 years of success empowering business expansion globally, boosting revenues and increasing margins for companies in a variety of sectors. He serves on several boards and influencer panels and think tanks with respect to India and US and Global Business Forum. Previously, Dr. Aggi served as CEO and member of the board of LNT Infotech, where he expanded the business on a global level by establishing the global services function, building the global sales leadership, and preparing for an IPO. During his time at Steria Inc. India, Mukesh served as chairman and CEO for the Asia Pacific region and oversaw a major merger to transform the company into a $2 billion business. He has been working in his startup in the education sector and was the founding CEO of Universitas 21 Global, a world's largest consortium of research-led universities and a global leader in providing postgraduate online education. Earlier in his career, Mukesh served as president of IBM India for IBM Corporation and spent time working with tech sector companies like Ariba, 
J.D. Edwards and Co. Mukesh holds several degrees, including an advanced management diploma from Harvard Business School, a PhD in international relations from Claremont Graduate University, and an MBA in international marketing from Andrews University. He has a BA in business administration from the Middle East College, Beirut, Lebanon. Dr. Agi is currently serving as a trustee at Claremont Graduate University. Such is his education and work qualification that he has been a fluent speaker at many international forums and delegations and he was recognized by the Esquire magazine as a global leader and has won many awards over the course of his career including the JRD Tata Leadership Award. Most recently Mukesh was a recipient of the Pravasi Bharatiya Samman Award. In his free time Mukesh is a major marathoner and a mountaineering enthusiast. Mukesh has completed over 27 international marathons and climbed some of the highest peaks in North America and Europe. And now he is scaling one peak after another on the Indo-US relationship agenda and building bridges between India and US. So Mukesh, welcome to Quote Unquote with KK. It's a pleasure having you here on our podcast show. Before I begin talking about the future of Indo-US relationship and business, I would love to catch on a few current events that has happened in the last few days and weeks on the Indo-US front. And I want to take your inputs and views, which could probably be, we could discuss further and how this is going to have implications on Indo-US. US relationship as well. You know, the first thing that spooked everyone was President Trump's arrest, and obviously he's pleaded non-guilty. How do you see this as an impact on the presidential race that's going to happen next year? Well, KK, good to see you, and uh, good to be on your podcast. Uh, you know, we met 2017, and you look as good as you were there in 2017. So, you know, the uh, the uh, the arrangement of President Trump and 32 felony counts of uh, charges against him it is a normal process. I know it's for the first time a ex-president has been charged, and uh, but the process is that you are innocent until proven guilty in front of a jury. So this trial will continue. I do not see President Trump withdrawing in his process of running for a re-election as president of the United States. In fact, in the first 24 hours after the charges, they raised $7 million in one day. Wow. So I think his base got charged up and his fundraising has gone up. So I believe that he will continue the process of running as a Republican nomination to the president of United States. So you believe that there's going to be continuity from where Modi, Trump, Bonhomi, we left behind four years back and should continue once he gets re-elected and hopefully Modi also gets re-elected uh, next year? Yeah, I believe so. You know, you have to understand uh, Prime Minister Modi is the only global leader who has maintained consistently relationship from Obama to Trump to Biden. A lot of leaders could not get along with Trump and lots don't get along with Biden, but Modi is one leader who has maintained that consistency. So regardless of who comes in, because the geopolitics dictate that the, these two countries work together, so you will see a very, very strong relationship between the two countries and two leaders. I want to flip this political issue about U.S. intervention recently and some statements about one of our 
Indian political leader who got an arrest warrant for a case against him and there's a judgment and the US actually said that they are watching it very carefully. Now if I were to if Indians were to say the same thing on Trump it wouldn't have really you know mattered much on Indo-US relationship but why does US want to make such political statements and observations when there's a lot going on on the other aspects of our relationships which I want to talk to you shortly after this why does us want to intervene in such matters when there is a legal judgment i think uh, it's naivety and uh, also you are trying to operate in the past rather than looking at india as a emerging power which is going to be a great power one day and to come and dictate a process of a judicial process which is taking place in this you know, India also can say that we will observe carefully how you treat Trump because you U.S. has gone much more aggressively on Trump than the judicial process in India has gone on Rahul Gandhi itself. So Correct. I think we have to grow up and refrain from commenting on all these issues because we have bigger things to do, bigger Correct. objectives to achieve, and don't let these trivial issues impede the progress between the two countries. Right. I want to shift gears. You just recently met the new ambassador to India from the US. Can you tell about your meeting with him and how do you see this panning out on our Indo-US relationships in future? Well, Eric, uh, you know, is a wonderful guy. One of the youngest mayor elected to city of LA. He has a bright future. In fact, he was intending to run for president and then he became co-chair of uh, Biden uh, committee itself. He is a big fan of India. He wants to do big things. He thinks big. And the good thing is he has direct access to the president. So you will see a lot of stuff happening. Uh, it's unfortunate for the last two years, we did not have an ambassador. And, and while the Chinese, the Russians and Germans and French were walking the corridor, a US ambassador was missing. So I think to have him, uh, you will see a accelerated uh, momentum in the relationship. You also have to understand that you have Prime Minister Modi going for a state visit in, in June to Washington, D.C. Then you have, before that, there's a Quad summit taking place in Sydney on May 24th, where President Biden and Prime Minister Modi will meet. Then you have, after that, the G20 event. So you have some critical meeting taking place among the principals of two countries. And I think Ambassador plays a very critical role. So it's good to have him now on board. And you, we are hopeful that there will be a momentum acceleration uh, in the relationship. Yes, we are all equally hopeful about that as well. And one of the recent other event that also I was surprised was the NATO actually inviting India to join them at this point in time. Given that India has always maintained its non-aligned status and now under G20, it wants to champion the cause of the global south and has also been neutral on the Russia-Ukraine conflict. How do you view this development from the Western world and NATO specifically in inviting India to the NATO when there are other, you know, formations like the Quad and we are doing a lot over there as well. How do you view this and do you recommend that India should join the NATO? Well, NATO, you know, is a military alliance uh, which was built after the Second World War. It was an alliance to deal with Soviet Union. And uh, now when you look at it, you know, you have Russia, which is 
getting uh, more and more defunct as time goes by because of the sanction plus depletion of his resources on the Ukraine war. I think, you know, this is not a dog in the fight for India on NATO side. I, I think uh, India is a rising power, as I said earlier. It will be a great power and maintaining its independence is, is important. You do not want to get into alliances where you are basically working with somebody against somebody. Yes, India is in quad, but it's not a military alliance. And the quad focuses on technology. It focuses on multiple economic issues. It also basically is, is an organization which is trying to make sure that the current global order is sustained. And it tends to check on China because China has clearly said that the current order uh, needs to be disrupted and they want to impose a new order. And I think that's where Quad plays a critical role helping India from that perspective. So I think it'll be uh, premature to basically, to get into a discussion that India should join NATO. My, my thinking is India should refrain from joining NATO, maintain its independence, and keep on focusing on economic growth for the next 20 years. And what about defense collaboration and defense into U.S. purchases of defense equipment and hardware is concerned? We anyway are, are working and collaborating. Plus, we had security advisor Dr. Dovell also visit U.S. and talk about the future on various advanced technologies as well. I'm sure that can be worked out. And what do you see that, you know, without joining the NATO, access to such technologies and India playing a role in developing such technologies out of India as well? Well, you know, today India's 60% of the platform is, is Russian. And with Russia's own challenges in Ukraine, uh, what we are seeing is the supply of uh, spares to coming to India have kind of slowed or stopped. And you have to understand when you have your armed forces almost 100% on T-72 tanks, which consume a lot of spares, and suddenly they stop, they started grounding down. When you have your tanks and Sukhais, uh, not getting spares, they start getting grounded down. It has an impact on India's defense uh, posture. I think it's critical that as India emerges, that it becomes self-sufficient in defense manufacturing. In fact, I, I strongly believe India can play a much stronger role because as a large defense exporter, uh, because it has the capability and defense, uh, defense equipment is more and more software. And India is a software power. So right. I, I strongly believe in the next 10 years, you will see uh, India will become self-sufficient in defense and also become exporter. Now, on the second aspect of your question, uh, yes, there are some critical technologies with U.S. and India need to work together. Uh, when uh, NSA chief uh, Doval was in D.C., uh, they talked about it and there was a willingness on part of the leadership, political leadership, to provide these technologies. And we are looking at, for example, the GE jet engines. If we can right. manufacture them in India, it will be very transformative for the defense industry in India. So we are hopeful that you will see more and more transfer happening and manufacturing happening in, in India itself. Excellent. One last question very recently is the bankruptcies, not just of the banks in the U.S., 
and several countries which are on the brink of bankruptcy. And you also mentioned that, you know, we need to change some of these institutions that were formed post-World War. What's the move in the US and Washington about reforming the financial sector, ensuring that the banks and the financial institutions are far more robust and risk management and practices are upgraded, not just in the US, but globally, so that we do not feel the Lehman-like crisis across the world. Obviously, I had a few sleepless nights on calls with some of our investors in the US as well when the Silicon Valley Bank collapse occurred. How do you view this and how do people in Washington think that there is a process to be reformed and there is need to be a participative process around getting some of the best practices across the globe of how the financial system is managed? Well, I think for democracies to flourish, you need to have financial system which are resilient uh, where people can trust and, and park their money and invest their money. And I think in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, uh, it's a combination of run on the bank plus some of the guardrails, uh, which could have been strengthened itself. And I think the lessons have been learned. If you look at, we worked very hard, both uh, with the feds, with the treasury department, uh, to make sure that the investor's money is protected. When I say investor's money, depositor's money is protected because Silicon Valley Bank is a bank which provided lending to hundreds of startups. That's correct. And their money also were in, in, in those banks. So the moment if you shut that down, people lose their money. It has impact on jobs, innovation, and, and, and growth story, economic growth story of the United States. So I think it was very prudent on part of Biden administration to honor every deposit in the bank itself. Yes, we have to look at the guardrails, and I think those have to be strengthened, and that that process continues. There have been several committees formed to see what else can be done. But I think that's the issue across the world. You look at what happened between uh, Credit Suisse and, and UBS itself. Right. Uh, there was a run there also. So I think uh, we also have to make sure that there's a consumer confidence in the bank uh, because un unless you have the confidence, you will start seeing more and more runs happening. But I think that situation seems to have settled down. Uh, the sentiment is, is we need to move on. But yes, you're right. We have to come up with a better guardrails to protect the banks and the consumer itself. In fact, as a corollary, we had a lot more interest of investors into our fund and into investing into India in hard infrastructure as well. While this whole Silicon Valley episode happened and an interest into ensuring that why don't they park their money in the IFSC in India itself and let that money move into our fund and into invest vehicles in India itself. So there's a lot that India has gained also at the cost of whatever collapses that has happened in the last month or so as well. Do you think India need to lobby about this as well, that we have a, a much more robust system, our laws are far more protective, and our banking system, in spite of this Heidenberg and Adani saga, has not collapsed any of our banks here? No, I think uh, the uh, the regulators in India and and the governance process shows that the banks are much more robust and they are able to maintain the consumer confidence. U.S. and Europe uh, can uh, learn a lot from that itself. I think if you look at our non-performing assets in these banks are also coming down as time goes by. So I think I have to give credit to uh, Finance Minister Sitaraman and the Modi administration uh, to tackle this head on. I think the challenge is not the robustness of the bank. The challenge is availability of cheap capital 
in India. And that needs to be looked at and worked on because if you're going to have investors invest, if we're going to have startups flourish, you need capital which is competitive globally rather than more expensive in India than the rest of the world. So I think that area we have to explore further to ensure the economic growth story continues to happen. Excellent. Okay, I want to shift gears on our recent past, I would say post-COVID, the new normal. And you've also made statements in the press and media that 2022 was a breakthrough year on Indo-US relationship and business. How do you see this transforming in the future? There are a lot of things that have happened in 2022, both on the political side, on the business side, on the cultural side, visits of uh, several dignitaries from US to India and India to US, including some uh, ministers and then also the prime minister and then meetings in the UN as well. How do you see this uh, 2022 actually giving a boost for the future of Indo-US relationship and what contours of these relationships do you think uh, got framed in 2022? I think uh, multiple events which happened in 2022 and probably also a bit earlier, which kind of position India and the US in a very, very strong position. Geopolitically, when you look at China, started becoming much more assertive, aggressive, and, and posturing that it wants to challenge the current global order. And for it to basically move in the direction, it first needs to have a dominant presence in Asia Pacific. And so when it pushed India on the border, India pushed back, it sent a message that India is not going to be pushed over. It sent a message to Chinese that, you know, we have a border and if you want to be a good neighbor, we can settle those open issues in an open dialogue. Don't try to move in because India will stand up to it. So that sent a message to the rest of the world that India will stand up to China and India is not going to push over. Second part is while the global economy was teetering on recession, India was showing six and a half to seven percent growth and, and resilience in that growth itself. The budget presented by this government, almost 30 percent was capital investment. And, and so the messaging was that while the rest of the world recalibre, India is on a growth story, development path. I mean, you look at a country which is building over, you know, 40 kilometers of highway on a daily basis, which is building or renovating almost 200 airports. And you look at shipping ports. Uh, it is a country which is on, on a march, uh, on a development march, and which will have a economic growth and job creation for its citizen. Then when you look at uh, what happened in Ukraine and, and Russia, the world said India needs to take a position. And India said, this is not our dog in this fight. And, and, and we do not need to take a position. And India maintained their neutrality. And after some time with all the criticism, everybody realized that what India is doing is the right thing. Today, India is buying roughly 1.2 to 1.4 billion, uh, sorry, million barrels of oil from Russia with $60 and less. And it has basically let the oil from Saudis, from Iraqis, from UAE, let the Europeans buy it. And what's interesting is 50% of the oil India is buying from Russia 
after getting refined, goes into Europe. So in a sense, India has taken an independence posture geopolitically in front of China. And I think uh, U.S. realizes that. And you have to understand from U.S. corporate perspective, you have a market which is growing. And it's a market which helps them de-risk their manufacturing in China itself. So we're seeing plethora of companies now moving their manufacturing into India. Apple next year will produce 20 million iPhone 14 in India for the rest of the world itself. So we are seeing a momentum taking place. So I think uh, 22 was a pivotal year for India and we see 23 a much more critical year for India because G20 and and, and so you will see a rise of India, emergence of India uh, continuing. You've been there in Washington. How do you see the current mood towards India? You know, over the last decade or so, US has always been blow hot, blow called on India, sometimes playing on Pakistan, sometimes playing on other factors in the region. And how do you see this now that Pakistan is no longer relevant for US? How do you see this panning out? What are the areas of convergence or divergence on the mood in, in the US and Washington particularly? And I'm not very keen on the obviously political affects our business. But how does this mood actually lead to much better trade and commerce and a better relationship between the two countries? US is now the India's largest trading partner, going over $150 billion per annum. It's expected to grow even at a faster pace. How do you think that there are issues which we need to resolve so that we have a stronger relationship in the future? Well, let me uh, start with, and I won't name names. I was in the White House on a planning session. and. Somebody said, will India adjust to this policy which we are thinking of making? And one of the direct reports of President Biden turned around and said, I want you to understand very clearly. And that is, India is a rising power. We have to learn to adjust to India's needs. So it's, it's no longer a one-way street. It's a two-way street on trying to accommodate and adjust. You have to understand, uh, Obama said this, so did Biden said this, that the most consequential relationship of 21st century for the United States is India. And uh, when you look at from a trade perspective, I do expect in the next year or so, the trade to cross $200 billion. In fact, I remember hosting then Vice President Biden, and he said, we need to drive this trade to $500 billion. Uh, when you look at, we have 5 million Indian Americans in the U.S. with twice the per capita earning and, and, and one of the most affluent minority group. Biden administration has put appointed over 150 of them uh, in this administration itself. Uh, when you look at students, we have over 232,000 students. 70% are in STEM program. Our objective is to basically take the number to 500,000. And if they stay, they become taxpaying citizen, uh, contributing to the economy on day one itself. So I think uh, there's a lot of energy, there's a lot of trade, the value system is there. Geopolitically, both countries are aligned vis-a-vis uh, -vis China itself. So I think I see regardless of Republicans or Democrats, this relationship keep on moving in, in a positive direction. 
you mentioned about you know our relationship to grow to 500 billion dollars of trade where are the gaps here since you have gone through and have had discussion in washington as well we are also talking of uh, hitting a trillion dollars of trade this year globally in terms of and a positive balance of payment for the first time i guess in the history of independent india where are the areas where india need to really invest and build on those factors of production so that we can really be a equal and a competitive uh, trading partner to the us well i think uh, three broad areas uh, one is definitely on the services side that's the strength of india and, and keep on uh, focusing on that we have a skill shortage not only just in the united states but in europe and other part of uh, asia such as japan and india's uh, education skill talent uh, creativeness can basically uh, fill that gap so I see tremendous growth happening on the services sector. The second area is, is energy. India is a net importer. And right. I think that's where the U.S. can play a very pivotal role on natural gas and other areas, and also on a renewable. Uh, some of the technologies coming in the U.S. can be used in India. So I think the export from India in that area can play a two-way trade itself. And third factor is manufacturing be it in generic drugs, be it in defense equipment, be it in other areas, I think this will continue. As com companies de-risk their manufacturing in China, uh, India will become a stronger manufacturing hub and an exporter. And I said, you know, next year, it will be 20 million iPhone 14 uh, manufacturing in India, and most of them will get exported itself. And these are high ticket items. So I think uh, you will see momentum picking up in all three broad areas, and the trade will reach $500 billion in the next 10 years. One of the things you talked about services, and obviously I'm also one of those victims here in India, is that the visas, US visa, even for a drop is a thousand day waiting. And obviously the foreign secretary said, we are recruiting people, we are opening more slots and making more you know, resources available to ensure that the backlog that had emerged during the COVID time would be cleared uh, soon. But you know, I had a 20 year uh, re-entry visa into US, and I'm waiting now for a renewal and the date for drop is next year. And obviously when you have been in the tech sector, I've been in the tech sector in India and we had to do a lot of work and projects in, in, in the US from an offshoring and from onshoring point of view. The quotas that are available for uh, H1B and L1 from an India point of view has never been enhanced. And while the quantum of business has actually increased, how do you make the foreign secretary understand that mobility of people and resources across the countries is very important for trade and technology transfer and work to happen? So I think two broad areas. One is an immigration issue, and one is more of a resource issue. The, the consulates in India, U.S. consulates in India, were caught off guard uh, post-COVID when so many applications came in. And not having an ambassador also didn't help. And right. what we are seeing now is they put a lot of resources. For example, I am in Mumbai. They brought in 75 plus folks in Mumbai consulate to oh, process okay. visas. And in fact, in the first three months, from January to end March, they processed more visas than all of last year in Mumbai itself. And they've opened places like Singapore, Thailand, Dubai, so you can go apply as Indian citizen. So I think you will see more and more uh, resources being added 
and that will get eased up. So to me, that's more of a temporary aberration, uh, which will get fixed up. Now on the H-1B, that's a big issue because I think we have a big shortage of over a million software engineers in the US and, and uh, the H-1B visa is coming more 20 years old while the economy has moved on and that right. has to be fixed. And I think we're working with multiple uh, political leadership to see what can be done uh, to move that forward. In fact, we have 1.2 million Indians uh, who are waiting to get a green card who are H-1B visa holder. We need to move that also forward. Otherwise, it's going to take me 20, 30 years if you go with the current process. So I think both Republican side and Democratic side realize there's a problem. And I think hopefully they can come together and fix this issue together. Why do you think U.S. doesn't want to allow visa on arrival? I mean, you know, I've traveled on Indian passport to several countries. I mean, I've done 30 countries all over the world. Several of them do recognize Indian passport and do allow visa on arrival for business purposes. Why is there a hesitation there uh, as well? I'm sorry to digress a bit, but people like us, I want, I'm waiting for an investor meet in the U.S. I want to meet both my kids who have not met, you know, for almost three, four years, but yet I can't do anything. So I'm sure like me that I'm not complaining, but we could probably ease this out, you know, I'm, I'm going to come back to India. I'm not going to stay there just because I have my kids or, or I've got my business here. Why can't there be certain, you know, relaxed Taxations like these, which could actually help translate a lot more business between the two countries, business to business collaboration, I would say. No, I, I, I agree. I think that has to be eased up, you know, either expedited process or visa on arrival itself. I think a lot of countries uh, provide that. Uh, but I think at the other side is you have both countries making millions of dollars on visa application fee. That's a revenue loss, both for India and the United States. No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind paying yeah. whatever $100 or $200 at the airport where I'm getting yeah. my stamp, uh, 72 hours or whatever. No, I agree. I agree. I think. I mean, just you've just made a visit here for a quick one to Bombay. <laughs> no, no, I agree. I agree. And that has to be fixed. Uh, you know, we will talk more about it. But, you know, for the U.S. passport, you can go almost any country, get a stamp right. and you land there. Same with India, and it's a little more limited. But I think that has to come to a st maturity stage so both countries can provide each other that visa on arrival. And I think that's one thing your suggestion we should work on. You see, from a financial investment point of view, India has been sharing a lot of information, FATCA, and so many other things. I'm sure based on our Aadhaar, our income tax, PAN number, and all the other identification, these databases could be available to the U.S. authorities, and they know that a person can be profiled, whether he's a high-risk immigrant uh, over there or he's going to come back in the next no, 72 hours. You that, know, Anna. And this has been done from, I guess, uh, Obama's time, yet uh, our artificial intelligence intelligence and what systems and what, what things that we are doing can definitely enable this sort of things. And there would be a lot more that could happen on international travel rather than business on teams. No, I agree. I agree. I think we need to explore that and we'll bring it up. Okay, so I want to uh, shift gears a bit on a couple of points over the last year, which has been making things a little bit more uncertain on the business environment. One, obviously, the Ukraine issue and obviously issues around ancillary to it, whether it's the supply chain, the food crisis, the energy crisis. How do you see the mood in Washington now? I'm also reading and hearing that they want India to intervene between Russia and Ukraine. What's the truth out there? Where do you, they see India playing out in this whole 
India-Ukraine conflict and what role do they see uh, India playing in it? I, I have to understand uh, between Prime Minister Modi and President Putin, uh, there is a relationship, there is a line of communication and and certain level of uh, uh, trust there. Uh, there is a line of communication between Prime Minister Modi and President Zelensky. And uh, I, I think it's too premature for India to jump in and 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 we play a role of peacemaker. Uh, you saw early on President Macron uh, started it, then he had to back off. Uh, we did have uh, the Chinese give 13 point peace plan to the Russian, but no discussion with the President Zelensky. And, and so I think in any war, what we have seen history tells us, unless both parties are exhausted, they will not come to a peace negotiation. And I think at the moment, they're still not completely exhausted. And, and it's a matter of time when we see that uh, they're exhausted and, and they will come. So I think it's too early to push either side. Let them just uh, fight it out. And, and, and at some stage, then somebody has to jump in and say, okay, now it's, it's time to sit down and, and talk peace. Is there any back-channel conversations uh, India is also participating, according to you, from Washington? Or is India is just silent on this matter as it is? it has been I, uh, neutral? I think there have been uh, uh, back-channel communication. I mean, say you had uh, NSA chief who met with Jack, Jack Sullivan and then he flew straight from there and met with Putin. Obviously, he carried some messaging there. And, and, and so, so I think they are back channel, but uh, I'm not privy to what the messaging was. But yes, you need to ha have that and they continue to happen. Let's now talk about that 500 billion target between India and US per annum of trade. Both countries have a lot to offer. Obviously, uh, our tech sector and services are, are one of the biggest plank. Uh, and obviously, we discussed about the, the visa and, and those issues. There's a lot also on the manufacturing side, particularly the Make in India initiative and a lot of investment into infrastructure. And according to some of the industry estimates from FIKI, CI and and other bodies, we need almost a trillion dollar of investment itself into hard infrastructure and capex to reach a substantial leverage and growth on our export and make it far more competitive. How do you think the US is willing to participate, not the private equity, but it's on more on the bilateral side of things, uh, into such huge capex and investment program if we were to scale up our trade between the two countries? So I think there are multiple ways to. Uh... Uh, uh, skin this cat. Uh, one is uh, you have large World Bank and IMF investments at low interest rates, which uh, India needs to capitalize uh, in, into the country itself. I, I think the pivotal role is going to be private sector. Uh, if we are able to take our projects, infrastructure projects, and, and sell them, be it airport or shipping ports or rail lines, uh, to uh, private investors, I think that's going to bring more capital into the country. I think it's important also to leverage the uh, insurance sector. I think it's important to bring them in so they can open up the bond markets in, in India itself and bring in institutional investors, which look at 20, 30 years long-term investment. So the opportunity is there. And what we're seeing is India is, is moving that direction. It takes time because people want to be cautious about it. They want to be, uh, you know, uh, ensuring that uh, what they do is, is the right stuff. 
and so I think you will see that momentum picking up. Uh, what we did with Air India, for example, it is a bold move on, on part of government of India. Uh, what we are seeing on on airports getting privatized, that's a right move on part of government of India. So I think you, if you start focusing in the direction, you will get trillion dollars, trillion and a half dollar into the investment coming to the country. You see, pre-COVID, and I have also written about it, we had this whole national infrastructure monetization, NIPM program. And we talked about almost, if I, we were to look at the divestment of the government infrastructure and reinvestment through bilateral investment, the quantum is very huge. We're talking of huge quantum, but somewhere it did not pique any interest from international investors as I would have anticipated. And obviously COVID led to a little bit of dropping of that whole program. I do not know where it is at this point in time, but infrastructure itself is crumbling both in the US as well as in India. And we need to have certain mechanisms to allow for free and easy access of capital. That's the first you know, factors of uh, production to in- enable the other things as well. IMF and their programs and obviously these multilateral agencies, they do take their time and to vet it, allow for it. Do you think guys like the, we have a couple of infrastructure funds who are directly investing. Do you think US government and the endowments over there could directly invest into such funds set up by the government of India, which could have a regular and it the, obviously the risk is very high. They're not debt, the equity into the infrastructure. But do you think the US will enable such sort of investment vehicles into India, into government sponsored infrastructure funds? Well, I'm I also running the, one, but it's a private yeah, one. I think you have the uh, Export Import Bank, which is a government entity in, uh, in the US. You have DFC, uh, which has roughly $123 billion to invest. So they all are looking for return on investment and job creation. And, uh, but I think the majority of the money is in private hands in the US. Can you look at, uh, if you will go on Sand Hill Road. All the pension funds there. Yeah, you know, you look at CalPERS uh, and others, they are holding trillions of dollars in, in funds and looking for long-term safe investments. And I think India can provide that path to these folks so they are able to get better returns because at the moment the returns in the US are not that high. So right. there is an opportunity. And you know when you look at private equity guys like Blackstone or KKR or Walker Pinkers, they are putting billions of dollars in India buying assets and, and monetizing them. So they see an opportunity. In fact, you talk to Blackstone uh, with uh, Steve Schwartzman. He will say my best return of investments uh, around the world are coming from India. He is seeing roughly 30% IRR on his investments in India itself. So, so I think uh, India is a great place to get a better return. And uh, it's just a matter of trying to convince the institutional investors, more private equity uh, to come in much more stronger. You see, the Canadian guys have moved much faster. Canadian pension fund, and they moved in much faster. They have their offices here, and they're collaborating with other infrastructure funds like us and other people as well, and directly investing on a bilateral as well as on a 
private basis. Why is that? And I, I've met so many pension funds who are holding hundreds of billions of dollars there, but the chunk size for them to manage India is too small and they want to avoid doing that. And how can we help facilitate this investment into India by ensuring that we probably provide proper mechanism for them to monitor those investments as an investment manager? At the same time, even if it's a small chunk of investment, it's not a big administrative burden for them to report back to their own investors there. Yeah, we are seeing, you know, you mentioned our Canadian pension fund, and uh, we have looked very carefully as to why U.S. pension fund have not moved into India. And a couple of factors. One is perception, and second is education, and the third is a mechanism. Uh, we need to change the perception about India that you have a government which you know, is unpredictable in its policy making. Uh, it will basically not protect the interest of long-term investors itself. That perception has to change. That means we got to go educate them. We got to talk to them, each one of them, and tell them how they can get better return when they invest in India itself. I strongly believe it's just a matter of time. Canadians are coming in. I'm seeing GIC from Singapore coming in. Right. You have Abu Japanese Dhabi, are coming in. The Japanese are coming in. And, and if the Americans don't put their flag together oh, on the ground here, they will miss an opportunity. Do you think we can do something with you to lobby into all this? We are doing our 101s there when we visit and meet some of these pension fund managers, investment managers in those large endowments in the US. But on a collective as an investment manager, do you think we could help accelerate this with you there? Well, we, we would love to do that. We would love to do a roadshow, uh, talk to most of these uh, large pension funds and, and try to change the perception, try to educate them and set up a mechanism so they're able to get access to some of the product they're looking to invest in. So I think uh, there is an opportunity and I would love to work with you and your team to see how we take that forward. Thank you so much. Okay, one major worry that we all have for a sustainable and huge growth trade and commerce with US is a stable dollar regime. And now India has started putting rupee rupee trade and many more, you know, other mechanisms to enhance its own global trade. How do you view this? And what is the US view in Washington about rupee rupee trade or rupee ruble trade or rupee dirham trade agreements that India is signing up with other countries? Does that make dollar weak or how is the viewpoint in the U.S. about it? See, when you look at it from a global trade perspective, the rupee, ruble, or rupee, other currency trade, so it's, it's very, less than hundred billion dollars. Yeah, it's very minuscule, and 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 so it has no impact on the dollar trade or dollar as a dominant currency on a global basis. You have to understand the trust factor in dollar remains very high. People will not put their assets into one or be not as confident about the Japanese yen or basically Europe dominated currencies itself. Dollar still dominates the global trade itself and it has a trust factor uh, of almost every nation itself. So I don't think there's any concern. I think if there is a concern that is, is we need to use less sanction as a weapon uh, because that does have impact on dollar domination and 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 countries who feel that they'll get sanctioned will start moving and pivoting away from dollar trade itself but overall i there's no cause of concern i think dollar still 
is is the confident king on the currency side. Okay, I want to shift gears a bit here. Talk about your vision and passion between the and you being one of the most vocal person in Washington from the Indian diaspora. How does the Indian diaspora feel about India at this point in time? I'm sure we are now having second and third generation Indians born in India, uh, born in the US as well. How do they connect with the country and in the Indian diaspora there? Well, I think when you look at the first generation Indian immigrants in the United States, they have a strong attachment to the country of their birth. And they still have probably relatives, friends, and education institutions where they studied and, and, and moved on. What we are seeing is the second generation, third generation, do not have that emotional attachment. And basically what happens is then they start pivoting away. And the classic example would be Bobby Jindal, you know, who basically yeah. ran for president and, and basically said, I'm not Indian. And, and lost the whole Indian-American vote. So, you know, Israelis do a very good job. They take the second generation, third generation uh, of the Jewish community and get them down to summer camps uh, in, in Israel, into kibbutz and other areas. So they're able to, uh, you know, get that attachment back from a, either religion perspective, from a cultural perspective, uh, or physical environment attachment itself. And I think uh, we've been seriously thinking about looking at that program and see how we can do that uh, with the uh, the Indian diaspora. The numbers are larger, but Correct. I think if you don't go in that direction, then you will lose the asset you have, which is the Indian American. So how do you think we have those bonds and the cultural ties between the two countries actually even enhanced and grown uh, further between the two countries? No, I think... Uh, you can, you know, as I said, first generation is not an issue. Uh, you know, they come back. And in fact, you know, this month they just launched a U.S. IPL cricket team itself, the okay. series itself. So, you know, there is a uh, fondness to the game, the country, uh, the food itself. But we need to put a program together, take the second generation, third generation, you know, bring them for internship, bring them from camps. Uh, let them uh, live with families here. Uh, that is a massive project which we need to work on. Otherwise, we will lose that. And I think that's where the private sector can play a pivotal role. And we intend to explore that and see how we take that forward. Excellent. I'm more than happy to contribute there as well. My kids always celebrate their, their Indian culture club in their college. They have the Diwali and the Holi just to sensitize the whole cohort of their class or their college about uh, the Indian culture and history. But once they get on the job there, I think uh, that's all lost. That's true. But uh, but what, what's interesting is yeah, I'm seeing more and more cities declaring Diwali as a holiday. Uh, you know, you saw Biden celebrate. So did Trump celebrate. So did Obama celebrate in the White House? So from that perspective, but I think we need to go beyond lighting of the lamps in Diwali and, and inculcate uh, the values and, and the country's culture into the younger youth. I want to just pick up one recent event here as well. One of the state in the U.S. actually talked about creating a Hindu phobia, anti-Hindu phobia regulation as well and uh, that was georgia how do you see that as a development in the u.s you know these are politics which are basically born out of ignorance 
And, and, and I think we just need to go uh, educate them. Does it have an impact? I don't think it has an impact, uh, but I think we need to be also cautious about it because ignorance brings violence. And, and we just need to ensure that we early on start educating uh, about the religion, about the values, the teaching. So I think uh, we need to work together on this so we don't go in the wrong direction. I hope the Khalistan issue is all resolved in San Francisco, uh, whatever happened on the Indian embassy and all over there. Uh, it's all died down, I believe, now. Well, the Khalistan issue is not resolved, but the, uh, the, the, uh, the uh, violence which took place, I have to give credit to the U.S. Secret Service and the state police, which moved in very fast, uh, especially in Washington, D.C., and, and controlled it. Uh, will that go away? I don't think so. I think uh, there are vested interests, there are vested countries which want to brew problems for India. So this will keep on coming, and we just have to be vigilant about it and, and make sure that they don't overtake us. I want to now move on the fag end of our podcast, but a few personal questions, uh, Mukesh. I know you've been from the tech sector. I've been on the tech sector and you pivoted this very excellently into a diplomatic and a lobbyist representing India and doing a great work out of Washington. How did you see this happen for you and what are your lessons that you have learned uh, along the way? Well, thank you. Uh, you understand when you have two democracies, they will flounder because leaders will come and go, bureaucrats will come and go, ambassadors will come and go, politicians will come and go. You need an institution which will hold both countries together. You need an institution which will have an agenda, which is a win-win agenda for both countries, and then drive that uh, in a fashion which is seen as we are a neutral party, uh, we are an interested party also to so see the success of both countries. And, and, and I saw that gap that there was no independent institution which was willing to serve the interests of both countries. So, you know, along with John Chambers, Ajay Banga, Indra Nui, Shantanu, and others, uh, we launched this in 2017. And the uh, rest is history. We seem to be moving. We have a lot of work to do but I think we're making a lot of progress also. So John Chambers also happened to be my ex-boss as well, <laughs> and <laughs> he's very pro-Indian, and I'm really glad to see this emerge out as an excellent uh, organization, which is doing a lot of India-US bridge building and taking uh, India-US relationship from strength to strength. I want to understand uh, what challenges did you face in the initial days uh, when you were setting up this organization? You did have in influential people, both from Indian and US, supporting you. How did you get that acceptance in Washington? I, I think uh, one of the first challenges was credibility. Uh, are we for real? And uh, what can we deliver? And this was not just in Washington, D.C. This was in New Delhi also. And uh, so you pick up small tasks and make them successful. Uh, you take small bites and chew on them and move on to the bigger objectives itself. So we, if you look at, we measure our success in, 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 on the policy side. We measure our success in fighting fires. We measure our success in, in, in trying to convey messaging uh, to both sides. 
And I think as time went by, there's more credibility. Our access has gone up. We have a larger team. And uh, so I think we are seem to be on the right path. With this, Mukesh, I really want to wish you all the very best, more strength, power, and success to you and your organization. And from my heart, I would love to host you next time when you are in Bombay or if I'm in Washington next, would love to catch up with you as well. But this has been a very positive guidance to what's happening in Washington and what's the mood in Washington and how do we see our relationship moving between India and US uh, as a key and pivotal partner in the global diaspora that we live in these days. So thank you so much for coming on my podcast show at a very short notice. Thank you so much for your team as well for organizing this. I'm sure I'm going to stay connected with you on a couple of those agenda items on the investment side as well. Uh, we have been representing a few things, but I will definitely send that across to you on a separate uh, note as well, what we have done there as well. Thank you so much and God bless. Thank you, KK. Thank you for your time. I, I enjoyed the conversation. We have a long way to go. So I look forward to uh, your support and your audience support to make this uh, relationship a success. Thank you. Thank you so much. Take care. Uh, Take okay. care. Bye bye. Take care. Bye bye.